Hello, this is Catherine, and you're listening to Friendly Anarchism. Uh, I have a pretty cool guest here today. Would you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? My name is Daryl Lamont Jenkins. I'm the executive director of One People's Project based in Philadelphia. We are an anti-racist organization, actually an anti-hate organization that monitors uh, right-wing groups and individuals and encourages people to diminish their ability to function. <laughs> uh, that is good. Um, How's that for an introduction? That's great. <laughs> that's very good. It sounds like you're a professional at this, like you've been interviewed before. Uh, yeah, quite a few times. Yeah. Just a few. Just a few. So uh, my first question is, why anarchism? Why are you an anarchist? You know, I became an anarchist, or, or rather I should um, actually admit it, I was an anarchist. Um, after I just started looking at how I go about my day-to-day, -day, I think that um, I've always been someone who wanted to be particularly independent and always wanted to see what it is we can build. And most importantly, I wanted, if I was going to be active in some sort of political advocacy, I wanted to make sure that advocacy went somewhere. It built something. Mm -hmm. And I, only way you can do that is if you were independent from a lot of the political, I guess, structures that are in this country right now. Anarchists do that. Mm -hmm. Anarchists put themselves in those uh, outside of those political walls and and build. And I and I came to the realization of that by watching an old PBS uh, documentary called Anarchism in America. And I'm sitting there watching it and going, "That's me." <laughs> <laughs> All, I mean, even though some of them were relatively libertarian, mm -hmm. um, it was still me. And, and I just started pursuing that direction more than I did any other kind of uh, left-wing direction, be it Marxist or um, neoliberalism or what have you. Um, and I think it's worked uh, for myself and it's worked for my organization because where people are still trying to figure out how to um, address certain issues in certain um, situations, um, one people's project and myself seem to already have an idea how. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't be able to do that if I didn't remain independent, and that's what anarchism gives me. Right. I have a secret feeling, it's not that secret, that everybody is actually an anarchist and just doesn't know enough about it to know that they're anarchists. This is true, I agree. I agree. I think that in many respects, I think that there's a lot of times where people, especially you see it a lot in the internet age, a lot of people um, isolate themselves, which is what, something I really don't want people to do. Mm -hmm. I don't want people to use the internet to isolate themselves further from the rest of society. But be that as it may, it does show that folks do relish a bit of independence um, for themselves as they go through their day-to-day. -day. They don't want to be, simply put, they don't want to be told what to do all the time. Right. They don't want to be told that they have to do things a certain way, especially if that certain way doesn't work. So a lot of people have been trying to buck that for the past, I guess, 20 years. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons why, I mean, 20 years is pretty much when the Internet came into vogue, and that's when you start seeing people even push back on the political process when they never really have in over 150 years. That's why you see things like Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter. You see the 2000 election go crazy. You see um, the first black president, even though we're not necessarily talking about 
anarchism in some of these situations, it's still an indication of how much of an influence anarchism can have and independence could have. And that is where we start looking at each other and going, well, what is it that we're really looking for? I mean, some people try to knock it down as saying it's socialism. There may be some truth to that, but overall, it gets even deeper than that. And I think this is where you will find um, where we are. And that's what I, I would suggest people take a look at the things that they're doing and see what, well, what is it that we're looking for in life mm-hmm. I see a and lot, in the society. <laughs> I see a lot of anarchist ideas permeating all through culture just without the label. Um, right. Becoming more and more popular, just, you know, co-ops and sort of like farmer's markets and like sustainable local food systems and all these things that are definitely sort of rooted in a direct service and direct democracy model that people Mm -hmm. just potentially don't relate or link to anarchism and anarchists have been sort of planting these seeds for decades and they're sort of starting to come to fruition which seems really exciting to me and that's the way it really should be it doesn't have to have a label i think and i think to be honest that is pretty much what um, anarchists generally go for. Since you don't have to call it any particular thing, you don't have to define it. Because in, in many respects, you're pretty much pigeonholing yourself again when you try to label it. Mm. So it doesn't necessarily have to have a label. It's just like people. Um, I'm, I'm from the anti-fascist scene, and a lot of times somebody would ask. Um, what makes Antifa? And I always tell you, you don't have to necessarily dress up in black and wear a bandana to be Antifa. You're already Antifa the moment you hate fashion. <laughs> so, so you don't. Ha- and I always also tell people, as a black man, I was Antifa before we even had a name for it. <laughs> I mean, when we was fighting, when we was fighting the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King was Antifa. Mm-hmm. All right. I mean, Marcus Garvey not so much because he was a nationalist. But, uh, <laughs> but, but. Um, but that's the thing that we got to look at. I mean, don't concern yourselves with the labels. Just do what needs to be done. It's not about being right or left. It's about being right and wrong. Mm-hmm. Right or wrong, I should say. I wanted to ask you about being sort of a black anarchist, because there's been a real erasure of black anarchism and black anarchists, and that's sort of like more radical political action that's been happening throughout the last century. Is that something that you've come up against? Is sort of the... Um, people not believe not being used to the idea of somebody who's black being an anarchist when anarchism is seen as primarily white well when you go back to talking about the labels and such when i approach people publicly and discuss um where i'm at as an as an activist or as uh, just strictly as a human being i really don't bring it up all that much i don't Mm. think it was it's important when i try to um discuss where I'm at and what I'm looking for. I think basically just getting the work done, just getting things done mm-hmm. is pretty much priority one with me. So I generally uh, don't get into those kinds of discussions. When I do talk about anarchism, I basically talk to them about, well, this is what it's about. I think I already still have to explain to everyone uh, exactly what it is before they even get to where well, you're black and you're anarchist. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I think I think uh, I have had very few um, opportunities to try to explain 
that anarchists aren't always white. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as a matter of fact, I don't even think that question has even come to me. Really? Um, ever. Huh. So, um, I think when folks see One People's Project and myself and the things that we do, I think that's the, really the only thing that anybody's really concerned with. And that's the way it should be. Mm-hmm. I think it's actually pretty dangerous to have anti-fascism relegated to a specific sect of people. You know, having anti-fascist the word or anti-fascista or antifa mean anarchist and have that be sort of seen as a minority um, fringe group can have mm-hmm. the effect of having all anti-fascists were pulled into the fringe. Well, that's what, that's what I was um, talking about before when I said that you're pretty much anti-fascist. You just basically hate fascists. Right. If you don't, if you way. believe in right and wrong, if you believe in human dignity, human rights, and such, you are antifa. Mm-hmm. Period. Paragraph at the end. Like I said, you don't have to wear that. You don't have to be an anarchist. You don't have to be dressed in black all the time. Um, you just have to basically have common decency, to be honest. Yeah. But what we keep, what we're running up against over the past year, over the past year, um, is just the the usual propaganda war. It's yeah. what always befalls anybody that's more on the left side of life. Every time we turn around, we have this propaganda thing that's going on where the right says this and that, this and that, and the liberals say nothing about it. Yeah. And that's what we're dealing with right now. Even, I mean, and I think one of the more um, pathetic attempts at it in recent, um, in recent days was when Fox News said that they were interviewing an ant an anti-fascist activist, and in truth, he was one of them, and he was trolling them. And it's that kind of thing that we're more or less up against. So not only do we have to try to define ourselves, um, we have to also um, beat back that kind of nonsense as well. That's why I'm always trying to encourage um, folks who are anti-fascist, folks who are anarchists, to come out publicly a lot more. Speak to that mainstream media, even though you don't trust it. There's a lot of people out there on the right that doesn't trust the mainstream media either, but they talk to them anyway. Uh-huh. you got to do more of that so people can understand where we're coming from. Mm-hmm. That's how this works. There was a, interesting, a pretty cool interview on Fox News recently with a woman who is starting, who's Antifa, starting self-defense classes in Chicago. Did you see that one? No, I did not. No, I didn't hear about this one. Oh, yeah, she was cool. I think um, she was Muslim. She's a hijabi, and she was being torn apart by some famous asshole. I don't remember his name. Fox News guy. (laughs) And uh, she really held her ground. She was awesome, and apparently they had to edit it pretty heavily because she really, like, ripped him to shreds. It was like a seven-minute segment, and they had to edit it Oh, wait a minute. I do do remember this. I mean, I haven't seen the video yet, but I am aware of... um... Um, hold on, I got a deer in front of me. Um, yeah, I haven't seen it. I, I haven't been, thing. I've been aware of, uh, I remember seeing the video, and the person that you're talking about that she was pretty much ripping the shreds was Tucker Carlson. Right, now, yeah, Tucker that's Carlson yeah. is a neoconservative commentator um, from way, from just about, been at it for about 20 years. He runs the website, The Daily Caller, and The Daily Caller has been leaning more and more towards the so-called alt-right and to the point where um, even like folks, white nationalists like Peter Brimlow have contributed to the uh, website and there's fluff pieces being written about people like 
uh, Jared Taylor or Richard Spencer in the Daily Caller. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Tucker Carlson is going to get ticked off when somebody says they're training Antifa to fight back against those clowns. And in the interest of this, um, full disclosure, um, is I have to remind people that, yeah, Daily Caller also took um, a really silly pot shot at me saying that I presented porn to a uh, to a press conference. Oh, so, gross. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little salty about that particular <laughs> website. <laughs> low blow. I mean, well, I mean it, it, it was a low blow because the article, to give you an idea, the, the same guy who wrote that article also wrote the articles on Jared Taylor and Richard Spencer. And so you read the article and it goes, yes, the, um, the thumbnails, it was on, it was supposed to be on a tablet. The thumbnails were uh, seen to be of um, white women in compromising positions. Ugh. And... <laughs> and I sat there and read this thing, and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, are they that, that they, that, how, how should I say, uh, is, do they really need to come after us that hard yeah, I mean, um, that um, that they have to come up with nonsense like that? I actually confronted that dude at a, um, at a conservative conference um, not too long after that, and he was sitting there just stammering away because... I don't think he expected me to be there, but uh, <laughs> that's the best thing about anarchists and Antifa. We show up when you least expect it. <laughs> the, so, the, expect it. <laughs> <laughs> like, the, what was awesome about her coming out in Chicago just being Antifa on this Fox News show is that because her position was so defensible and he his position is so indefensible it's like you can't possibly actually try and tell me that americans don't believe in self-defense that's the silliest thing mm -hmm. i've ever heard that a lot of republicans and people who watch tucker carlson you know for because they want to god knows why um got like stood up for her defense and like told the tucker carlson show and stuff that she was on the right side on that which was pretty impressive so the fact she really made a difference by going on that show and speaking to somebody like that Exactly. And, you, and see, the thing is, Fox News is always famous for trying to bring um, folks on the left that can't really articulate themselves all that much. Mm -hmm. They can say or they will say or at the very least, they would say things that um, some conservative activists already knows how to smack down. They'll say cliches and things like that. They that's who they bring on to um, to debate. And. This woman wasn't that, apparently. No, <laughs> she knew what she was talking about, and I think that's really important when it comes to um, dealing with the right. Make sure that you say things that they cannot shoot down. Make sure that you're confident enough that when they try to pick that kind of a fight, you know how to swing back. Mm -hmm. And and that is something I've, I've always watched Fox News. I've always listened to talk radio. Um, they telegraph their punches. They telegraph their punches. You know what they're going to throw before they throw it. And all you got to do is just know how to bob and weave and throw something that they don't expect. And that's what she apparently did to Mr. Carson. Yeah, I only saw, the, I only saw the two-minute version, but I, I want to go find the seven-minute because apparently it's fun. I'm going to have to watch it, too. But also, remember something else that we do that um, the right is having a hard time doing in this day and age. We also are out there for real. We're in the streets. We're right. making things happen. Mm -hmm. All they're doing is talking about what we are doing. 
one of the worst things, one of the most dangerous letters, three most dangerous letters that a conservative or somebody on the so-called alt-right could ever hear is IRL. <laughs> because, <laughs> because they can't handle it when IRL goes down. <laughs> It's hard with the media because I think so much anti-fascist work for a long time has been underground. So it's not a, I don't mm -hmm. think it's a comfortable thing for a lot of anti-fascists to try and deal with media. In a, you know. But there's people out there that can talk. I mean, I, I go out and talk to, uh, to the media all the time, but then again, I've been at this for years. Mm -hmm. um, there's one other person, Lacey McCauley, that will go out and talk, and she's also in one people's project. But there's others across the country that know how to deal with the media, and they, they really need to step up because we cannot um, lose this just because uh, we don't make a good verbal argument on Fox News. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> or MSNBC or CNN for that matter. We, I mean, yeah, we're good for putting our money where our mouth is, but sometimes our mouth needs to do the talking. <laughs> <laughs> I, that kind of brings us to what you're known for, doxing, because I, I, work, I work on trying to create these narratives. The part of the idea of this show is me sorting through how to talk about what anarchists do and explain anarchist action and anti-fascist tactics to liberals in, in particular. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the ones that's been real hard that has a lot of resistance is doxing. So um, how what do you have to say about doxing? You know, does it work first off? Like how do you explain its efficacy to people? Well, it definitely works, but here's the thing. Um, I never really looked at it as just simply doxing to go after somebody. I looked at it as simply reporting on who's who and what's what and what they're doing and where they're doing it. I mean, it's just I, my vocation is a reporter. I come from reporting for and editing and editing newspapers and being in media for over 20-some-odd years. So when we started One People's Project, we did straight straight news. Granted, it's coming from the anti-fascist perspective, but it's still straight news, which meant that we wanted to make sure that everybody had any and all information that we had. We did not want to keep anything close to our chest. Mm -hmm. Now, where it comes to being a tactic, per se, it only, insofar as that's the case, it was only because back in um, the early aughts, maybe the late 90s, there was a guy named Lee Horsley. He passed away. He's an anti-abortion activist, was an anti-abortion activist that thought it'd be a good idea to um, list the name and addresses of abortion doctors and providers. When one got shot and killed named Bernard Slepian, he crossed his name out that day on his website. Mm. So everybody freaked out. And they also freaked out about the fact that anti-abortion activists will be um, protesting outside somebody's home, outside somebody's clinic, with the names and addresses of the doctors and um, nurses that were working in that clinic. They took them to court, and the court sided with the anti-abortion activists, saying that it was free speech. Oh. And we looked at it and said, okay, well. then that means... That's another bit of information we can make public whenever we have it. So we got into this thing about li 
listing public uh, listing home addresses and names and blood types and whatever we had. <laughs> and that began our um, the initial freaking out of the right in regards to One People's Project. I mean, Michelle Malkin would get ticked off and send us um, send us emails asking us to take down her information. And the reason why we went after her in the first place is because um, she went after anti-war activists and started publishing their information. She asked them to take it. They asked her to take it down, and she reposted it. So we said, fine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's tell everybody who Michelle Malkin is. <laughs> <laughs> she did not like that. Mm. Now, eventually, for One People's Project's purposes, we stopped um, publishing names and addresses, I mean, not names, but addresses on on our website, on um, on OPP, just because it was distracting. But we do um, feel that we need to otherwise make sure you have all of the information about a certain person. Right. It's, it's not really a tactic. It's just simply us reporting. Now, if they have a problem with it, maybe they shouldn't be fascist. <laughs> That's the thing. It's, a, it's in one of those situations, too, where the state is allowed to do it and people, uh, the public is not allowed to do it because we have... We're totally fine as a country and as a society with publishing the whereabouts and locations of sex offenders, you know. Yeah. And the state does a Which much... Which is ironic because that's where we get a lot of information. <laughs> the state does, like, a much worse job than Antifa on, like, figuring out whether or not someone's actually a threat, you know. Well, take a look at what it is that we uncover whenever we um, do, and I very seldom use the term, but it is the term that everybody uses now. When people dock, when we dock somebody, um, take a look at what it is we find out. We find out that somebody named John Storstrom, who's who was hanging out with Matthew Heinbach, is a military contractor. He's making non-lethal bombs for the military in Maryland. Mm-hmm. When you have something like that going on, when you find a police officer whose mailing address and who's listed in a blood and honor, that's a neo-Nazi um, network, when you see him on their list, that's a concern. A police officer from Philadelphia. Yeah. We need, people need to know that. Yeah. Or when somebody's running for office, when somebody's like a, like a judge, and someone was running for a judgeship in Connecticut. We put her put her on blast because her husband is a big time was a big time neo Nazi, and she didn't seem to mind. Mm -hmm. I, think <laughs> I mean, it's that kind of thing that we um that doxing does get the goods, yeah. and it's exactly what we are supposed to be doing. We are supposed to be letting people know where problems arise, and within these people, that problem arising. I think one of the problems is just that there's only one word. Like you said, it's like doxing as a tactic. You say doxing, and the first thing I think societally that comes into your brain, for me particularly as a woman, is uh, misogynist harassment on the internet and sort of the real threat of danger using to terrorize m marginalized groups. You know, so when that is when that is the underlying connotation of the word dox and people aren't really that well-informed about what's going on, all they hear is the word docs and then, like, associate the two things. So that's one of the real problems. And I like how you say, no, look, we're reporting, so you're sort of, like, reclaiming a different type of narrative there. 
Mm-hmm. But and I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna tell you something else too. On the right, they call themselves citizen journalists. I'm more of a citizen journalist than they are, to be honest, because I and One People's Project do not involve ourselves in propaganda. We may have, a, we may take a certain position, but we're just simply making our case. We will tell the truth, and we will report on what is going on out there. That's the only thing we're concerned about. Mm-hmm. We are indeed concerned about the well-beings of others, which is particularly why we have decided to just go ahead and not publish addresses, even though we have them. Um, but by the same token, uh, the information that we put out there is not there to harass, is not there to intimidate. We even put out a disclaimer on the website that's been there for almost 20 years saying that, look, do not be like the people we profile. We are on the right side. Mm-hmm. Don't change that for yourself by using this information to do something stupid. And no one ever really has, not in regards to our um, information. The only thing that seemed to happen when it comes to um, what it is we do, people used our information to get people fired from jobs, to get people kicked out of office. Um, In some cases, they they would get arrested. We have no control over that. It's just unfortunately, it's public and and certain agencies do end up finding out that we have some information. We do not talk to police. They just get the information. Um, but that's the way it goes. Mm-hmm. That's just the way it goes. And I would say that there actually is some value in publishing addresses. When you look at these Antifa documents and write-ups on the people that they are refer- like researching, they're impressive. These documents are very long and well-researched and very impressive. And I think especially when look at these, they're demons, these people, they're dangerous. They're, you know, and knowing where they are and having a community have the right to know that this person's in your neighborhood and what they look like. I think if it was better understood just how dangerous fascism is and how real these threats are, that there is in fact worth to that. And, you know, somebody true, you know. true, and I and let me let me um and let me just make clear, there are times when we do say, okay, this people need to know exactly where this son of a bitch is. So, <laughs> so we so there are times when we will publish, but in just in recent years, we have said, you know what, I don't want to keep talking about why do we publish addresses yeah. here and why do we publish addresses there. If people need that information, we can possibly provide it. Um, but, um, but overall we, we can give people enough information without that drama that yeah. comes behind posting that. So, um, mm-hmm. so that's what, so that's why we do it. It doesn't mean we won't keep the information, but mm-hmm. for right now, um, we're trying to get people to understand exactly, um, where it is we're coming from, but that's really the only, um, there, there's a, no, let me take that back. Cause there's a few, um, things, restrictions that we put upon ourselves just so we can keep our heads about ourselves. Um, but that's one of the few. That's mm-hmm. one of the few. Um, but overall, you can get some really good information otherwise. I think that's smart. We're in this interesting moment where we're sort of having to balance societal change on a large scale with sort of smaller scale local community defense and how... Mm-hmm they don't necessarily match up that well at the moment. Like we're trying to figure out how to get those to work together because any time that a community feels scared, 
that can make the systemic change harder. So like what you're saying with sort of softening up a little bit and not putting out addresses because of the backlash that is sort of taking that step from this one type of community defense into widening out for larger societal change. Right. Right. Hey, well, I tell you like this: we got the uh, we got the um, membership list of the National Socialist Movement, and we posted that in 2011. So we so it's not like we're um, we're shying away from it too much. But like I said, um, we're just trying to we're just trying more or less play it safe. Yeah. But you know what? I think that the concerns that we have um, with society in general, in regards to dealing with fascism, to dealing with the right is due to the fact that we have been a relatively stable society for a good 150 years. Mm -hmm. We have not had a real war in this country in that time. The last war that we've had on these shores was the Civil War. So because of that, we were able to basically build the foundations that we wanted to build and change a few societal things that we needed to change, particularly in the 60s. So because we were, because of all of that, we've become rather, um, and what a lowercase c, conservative, and I don't necessarily mean right wing in that regard, but yeah. just mm -hmm. conservative. Um, and we're trying to basically maintain the stability that we have had for this long. And I don't think that people are prepared to see it go south just yet. They want change to our political process, however. Yeah. They want they want it opened up a little bit more. They want our, I guess, freedoms enjoyed a little bit more. And they don't want any of the roadblocks that we have had in the past. But because we elected an idiot like Trump and the white supremacists and the far right characters um, find strength in him, mm -hmm. we are now faced with the idea that it could all indeed go south. Yeah. Because they do not want that. They want the America of yesteryear where they was able to hold people down. The America even before the Civil War, mm -hmm. in fact. And I'm not necessarily talking about they want to bring back slavery. But when you talk about um, the America before the Civil War, you're talking about a time when America really, as, as we see, wasn't an empire, wasn't a, a, a nation as we know it. We were basically several nations, and they want that back. They want, in many respects, break up this country. Now, I know a lot of people who probably will think that that is a rather um, – tantalizing idea maybe it should be the case but unfortunately we still that means that we will allow some fascist states mm -hmm. to grow and i'm anti-fight to a fault yeah. i don't want to see that and i will not allow it and i know a lot of other people that also will not allow it yeah. so before uh, before we start um entertaining um a breakup of the country or or going in that direction, we got to remember that we do not want um, fascists to get stronger. Yeah. And I just went off on a little rambling stuff right there, so I apologize. <laughs> no, I was thinking in Oregon, you know, out here in Oregon, there's definitely a separatist movement. 
Yes, indeed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm very familiar with it up there. <laughs> yeah, and it definitely has a lot of white nationalist roots. Yeah. Um, there's a liberal... That's been going on for years, for yeah. years, for decades. Yeah. And um, it's pretty much now they think that they have their chance. And, um, and the answer has got to be no, you don't. You don't. One of the problems I'm running into is the fact that Things are changing really rapidly, whether people like it or not, and a lot of, especially sort of the liberals I work with and stuff, are unwilling to really accept the depth and the breadth and the seriousness of what's happening and still kind of clinging to normalization, even if the lip service is to, oh, don't let things normalize, but then still approaching the situation, approaching the problems from the same, uh, you know, electoral direction when we've got right, you know, IRL shit going on. So, yeah. And I, I think basically what that is, is just as I was saying before, a lot of people, not only are they not prepared to lose the stability that we have had, but they also don't recognize that stability going away just yet. They don't believe it. They don't believe that a September 11th could happen every single day for the rest of their lives, they're not prepared for that to happen, mm. and um, and that's and that's what really everybody was afraid was going to be the case when September 11th happened. They thought that we would see the twin towers come down, we would see the Pentagon come down, and next thing you know, it we got some nonsense going down in our neighborhoods, just as bad, and and it freaked a lot of people out. But look where we are today. We've been fighting a war for almost 20 years and there's a lot of people who don't even realize just how how much is impacting people overseas. It doesn't impact us. We're still living our lives like it was September 10th. Yeah. <laughs> so so until something comes along that changes that, um we can pretty much expect people to approach life the way um, the way that we see it today, but um, and they're fighting it. They're making they're trying like hell to make sure that that stability does not does does not escape them. That's what you're saying. Yeah. And they don't. It's not so much that they don't um, necessarily not see it. I mean, in some cases they do, as I pointed out. But there is just some who just don't want it to happen and are doing everything they can to keep it from. Being so, I have seen there is sort of an opening here though because anarchists are all of a sudden getting a whole lot of press, and I think people mm -hmm. are looking around. I don't think most people have ever heard of Antifa before, you know. And then there's people know the name, people know the word, people recognize you know these sorts of anti-fascist protests and brawls are happening much more visibly. So there is an opening here to sort of. I think carefully introduce people to the idea that yes, we are facing down actual fascism and yes, there are people that have been dealing with this and have methods of uh, combating this that may be uncomfortable, but it's a whole lot more comfortable than actual fascism. <laughs> like, well, I think, <laughs> I think one of the things that um, we all need to do is we have to do a little bit more outreach. We have to, and, we, and when we do that outreach, we have to go to where society is at. I remember back in the day when I first started getting involved with anti-racist action back in like 95, you're talking about an organization that at the time 
was doing block parties and having conferences all over the country, anti-fascist conferences. And I mean, they were sponsored by the various um, chapters of ARA um, around the country. And I think we need to go back to that. I, I think it's time for us, if time for us to stop being underground. There are times when we don't necessarily have to be. Put on, put on events. Put on block parties. Um, be involved in whatever it is that um, community organiz other community organizations are doing, and help them along. And I think it's time to um, introduce ourselves. Um, IRL, again, I think it's time for us to just simply get out there and showing people who we are, because that is going to be key. That is going to be um, what people want to see. And, and we know that because we saw people being very receptive to us in Occupy. Mm. Really, yeah? I mean, I mean, they, they hate to admit it, but <laughs> Occupy was created by Africans. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was started. It was started by us. We're the ones who did that. Yeah, I mean, the space based. And, and, it, yeah. and it was comical that when Occupy happened, um, there was a few folks in Occupy who were pissed off that anarchists were involved. Well, you came to our house. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but but you they got but when they got a taste of what that meant because what did Occupy did did was move the power away from the political process and into the hands of ordinary citizens to say, you don't need government to solve your damn problem. Yeah. And, be, and if you have an issue with some sort of politician, go to who's paying them. And in that case, it was these banks that are basically um, causing our political process to go completely haywire. They're the problem and we need to deal with them. These corporations are the problem, and we need to deal with them. Now, it was also a lesson learned, too, because we were able to see a lot of your more plutocratic and libertarian folks see what anarchists were trying to do with Occupy, and they were doing their damnedest to co-opt it, mm -hmm. and we would not let them. It actually, They actually had to go to the Democrats to basically shut us all down. Yeah. <laughs> and then the Democrats start taking up the idea of income inequality. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> and you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but it's amazing what happens when you allow people to do things. And the only way that um, people know that they can do things is if uh, you tell them. And, and, and you got to tell you got to go to where they're at and start basically building those relationships so that they can um, figure out how to do, how to do the change that we need to make instead of hoping that um, we can vote for the lesser of two evils in a couple of years. Yeah. I've noticed direct action is really great because it allows that feeling of empowerment and it allows mm -hmm. that feeling of um, feeling invested in a way that when it's, when something is two or three or four steps away from you, you know, you call your representative and the representative does this and they write a bill and blah, 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 blah. Uh -huh. You know, so everyone is so disinvested from the entire process. And then you get down and dirty and be like, well, this is your neighborhood. This is your garden. This is, you know, this is exactly. your defense. People, people really get engaged. You know, the, one of the arguments against anarchism is like, well, why would people spend so much time in these like 
like direct democracy is too hard because it takes too long and no one's going to be doing that. It's like actually people really do. If it affects their lives directly, if it's something, you know, people are invested in it, then they will spend the time, you know, even if it's more time. Direct action is the only way it works. Direct action is the only way it works. Right now, when you look at the political structure these days, it's just folks going through the motions to get paid. That's it. Everybody there, everybody that we see in government is just basically a damn salesman. Yeah. But you have to concern yourself with going through your day-to-day, even if folks in government don't. So the only way you are going to be able to see this through is if you engage in direct action. And direct action, per the label thing, doesn't always call itself direct action. Sometimes it's just called getting shit done. (laughs) (laughs) Well, people like getting shit done, especially when there's so much shit to get done. (laughs) Indeed. And when it gets done, we are the most satisfied people on the planet. When we see that we have... We have solved a problem that we are the happiest folks in the world. I mean, because, and the reason why is because we never thought we could. Yep. There are so many things that, that go on in our day-to-day that we could resolve right now if we didn't rely on some senator or some congressman to solve the problem for us. Yep. And I've so noticed many. Um, a lot of people I know that are especially younger and engaged in politics, actually not even just younger, who've been engaged in the normal sort of electoral politics, are sort of rapidly radicalizing as it's become more and more clear that government will betray you and has and just falls into dysfunction. You know, I, I know one person particularly who has done so much like campaign work and on all these things and then he basically came to one of our anarchist meetings and said, well, what's the point of all that if it can be turned around on a dime like one legal decision or one court decision or one bill being passed and all of that work is just gone it's like that doesn't happen when you've created actual power in your neighborhoods you know exactly i mean i think that and that is the most important thing now i will tell you that there are times when i will go out and vote i mean i do vote simply because hey some reason they got they was trying to kill us to keep us from voting back in the 60s and 70s. So <laughs> I'm just going to do it on general principle because there's so many people that died just on the F this. But I also know that that's just an X on the board. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I got to do something. I mean, bottom line is Donald Trump is president, but so freaking what? Yeah. He's still going to have to answer to us at some point. Yep. They keep talking about they keep talking about how um, the Republicans have control of the House and the Senate and the um, and the White House, but they can't seem to get things passed. Why? Because they're afraid they're going to piss off their constituents. Because their constituents are recognizing in this day and age that they that they are the ones with the power, not McConnell, not Trump, not Ryan. They do. That's what they're afraid of. And the more that we recognize that, the the better off we're going to be. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's getting a little bit more real for them now that, I mean, a senator just got shot because of the health care stuff. So, Steve Scalise. Um, Are you referring to Steve Scalise, the guy in the baseball? Uh, yeah, in the when baseball. Trying to play baseball? Yeah. You know. Now, how ironic is this, by the way, in that regard? You had somebody who calls himself a libertarian, and um, what's his face? Uh... Uh, oh boy, 
his father was the big boy. Paul, Ron Paul. Ron, um, oh, Rand, Rand Paul? Rand Paul, Rand Paul, yeah. Now, here's a guy who tweeted out his support for the Second Amendment as being something that was for us to go and shoot government. He tweeted that out a couple of years ago. Yeah. He forgot he was government. <laughs> he got reminded on that day. I mean, uh, yeah, we're, the, the, um, the conventional wisdom says that we're supposed to be sympathetic to those who were, um, who, who were attacked. And my feeling is, are they going to start being sympathetic to us now? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, you don't you don't play games with this because you will lose them. <laughs> yeah, and somebody mentioned, you know, it's, it's it's the difference between individual narratives and then systemic problems because that guy that got the senator that got shot, he's all close to the NRA, and because of bills he's passed and work he's done, who knows how many people are dead. So, oh, Steve Scalise? Yeah. Steve Scalise, the man who once referred to himself as David Duke without the baggage? Oh, God, I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, not only has he referred to himself as David Duke without the baggage, 13 years ago, he spoke at a conference that was sponsored by one of David Duke's organizations. Gross. And he was the House Majority Whip. Gross. I don't have sympathy for Steve Scalise. I really don't. I mean, I, I shed no tears for Steve Scalise. I shed tears for the guy who felt he had to go that far. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. And they like to pass him off as just sort of like a normal, random liberal guy. And it's like, to, to further, again, with the narrative, you know, the right's pretty good at creating these narratives. Um, the right is pretty good at creating narrative and intimidating um, normies into accepting them. I'm, and by normies, I mean, I mean the mainstream liberals yeah. who won't put up a fight if you, unless you say you're a liberal and not voting for them, and you're going to go third party. That's the only time you'll see liberals fight. <laughs> but um, it's like <clears throat> the right knows how to intimidate, intimidate liberals. Yeah. And the reason why they hate Antifa is because we're not liberals. We're leftists. Yeah. And different. we will kick your ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I did read, I'm reading Against the Fascist Creep right now. Alexander. Mm -hmm. Very Cox. good book. I'm only a little bit into it, but at one point he talks about the dangers of the far left hating on liberals too much because then there's this sort of breeding ground of people who couldn't go either way um, between and that like liberal hate is one of those keystone moments where people so that's an interesting thing because I don't know how to like that I, well, I just read that and I was like that's an interesting dynamic I hadn't really considered because it's also a point of I don't know I don't like the word recruitment but you know what I mean into the left well, the way you're supposed to be dealing with um, politics in general, when you deal with um, socioeconomic situations in general, is because uh, is by trying to figure out where the common ground is. I mean, even with fascists, I would talk with fascists all day long. I mean, just as easily as I'm talking to you right now, and and along the same things. And that's simply because just simply to say. Look, we got to figure out how this is going to be hammered out. Because I mean, and get and don't get me wrong. The only way I'll be able to hammer out anything um, 
where the fascists is if they stop being the fascists. I mean, let's just be real. That's the only way it's going to be able to work. But you got to be able to talk to folks. You got to be able to say, look, your way is not positive. Your way is not going to work. If we, if whatever disagreements we have, we got to figure out how we're going to be able to maintain. And let's do it while we can still talk, because if it goes the other way, you're going to lose this one. Because we know how to fight you, not just Antifa, but communities that are in danger because of you. We know how to fight you. But we, it, it should not have to come to that. So, yeah, it can get dangerous if all the, all the um, anti-neoliberalism that we see. But we still have to engage. We still yeah. have to kind of like as Teddy Roosevelt said, speak softly and carry a big stick. That stick is in my hand as I'm talking. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's because if it comes to the point where they're not listening and whatever it is they're doing needs to stop, I don't care if you're a fascist or a neoliberal, then you got to be aggressive. You have to be aggressive. I mean, I was reading uh, an article by a guy named James, um, oh boy, Kirchick, James Kirchick, where he talks about how he was a liberal and proud of it. And I'm reading his article. He was defending conservatism. Oh, oh I think I saw this. Yeah. And I'm sitting there reading it going, every point you're making is a neoconservative one. Up to and including the part where he's attacking Muslims, which is something that I haven't mentioned his name yet, believe me. I'm usually good with mentioning his name every time I'm ranting about something, but <laughs> Bill Maher does this crap. Oh, Bill Maher's awful. He's terrible. Yeah, Bill Maher, is, Bill Maher has gotten increasingly worse over the years because he refuses to listen to anyone but himself. Yeah. And... And that has lent him, lent him down the road to some really stupid situations, whether he's um, having a bromance with Milo Yiannopoulos or attacking Muslims, no, no matter what it is they do. Bill Maher, and, had nice, wait, Bill Maher had nice things to say about Milo? That happened? Yes, that happened. Oh, God. Yes. He had him on the show. No, first of all, people, people, people were ticked off at him for platforming him in the first place. Well, yeah. I'm not, I, I don't really jump on that bad man really? all that much because I usually get a lot of information from when they, oh. when they show up. <laughs> okay, but sense. when Bill Maher had him on the show, he was comparing him to Joan Rivers and Christopher Hitchens. Oh, God. That's so gross. He was actually defending him when he said, no, when, uh, when Milo's, um, um, talked about his aversion and said that, um, People should simply use the bathroom of their sex, and he goes, "That's not unreasonable." It's, it, he took it took like Larry Wilmore and um, a black CIA former CIA agent to actually start calling Milo Yiannopoulos out on his BS because Bill Maher wasn't doing it. Ugh. He was having a little bromance with him. That's so gross. Oh, the Milo thing is interesting. Because being a fascist, like, didn't get people all riled up, but then it's like, oh, but he's also a pedophile. It's like, okay, now we don't like him. It's like, so genocide's okay, though. Like, that part's fine. We're cool with that. Yeah. Like, really? You see, see, this is one of the things you got to wonder about, and, and this is one of the things that makes it hard to um, 
not get into a liberal's um, grill over some of this, but it really drives me insane just how much um, you have to wait until they till they get offended at something that somebody says yeah. before something happens. Everybody else can start complaining about the racism, the homophobia, the sexism, I mean, the overall bigotry, but if it doesn't impact on your life, there is fair, it's fair game. They can do whatever they want. It should not be that case, and that's one of the reasons why Antifa's got to step up publicly a little bit more to explain, hey, look, if we are going to survive as a people, we have got to start being respectful towards each other and at the very least be respectful <laughs> towards each other. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to like me, but at least if you don't like me, give me a chance to earn your disrespect. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so do you think, for instance, now that a, a blonde, white Australian lady got shot by the cops, now all of a sudden was, there's a lot now, more... Now, uh, I don't mean to cut you off, but it was really interesting because when it first came, um, when I first heard of it, I'm on some right-wing, um, I'm some, on some right-wing Facebook pages. They were posting it. Really? Yeah, but they were posting it initially, going, playing the where is the where is the left-wing media now? Where are the protests now? Where is Black Lives Matter now? Oh, right. This was the first day. This is the first day it happened. Meanwhile, the media was there. The protests are there. Black Lives Matter is on the side of this woman, and even with the um, even with the cop being a Muslim, which now they think that they're going to use that against Muslims. I'm looking at all of this, going, we got to keep our head about ourselves. This is yet another case of police, um, a police killing that needs to be resolved. And um, it needs to be resolved in favor of the family. There is nothing that should change on our side. But at the same time, watch how the right-wingers play. <laughs> because after we start, we, we got we to gotta advocate for this woman. We have to advocate for this woman. Because this woman was simply, this woman called the cops because she was being attacked. Mm -hmm. And the cops shoot her. <laughs> That's garbage. They're they're but out of control. And it's happened so many so many times to black people. Mm -hmm. That is ridiculous. I mean, we just got over Philando Castile in Minneapolis. Yeah. And now this happens in Minnesota. So I mean, granted, um, yes, we have to keep it. We have to. Uh, we're going to advocate on behalf of this woman. We're going to support this woman's family, and. And there is no unwavering of that at all. But by the, at the same time, watch how the right place and start calling people, start letting people know to call them out on their hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, the white woman is shot by a Muslim, and they have to start changing their tune. If they start, if, if, I mean, you're going to watch them starting to, um, tr trying to do things that they should have been doing all along. I mean, just uh, that right wing radio, uh, right wing Facebook page that I was talking about. They was over there. Talk, they was over there saying that 
this guy has had um, this police officer has had complaints against them before, and there are a couple pending. Um, why aren't any? Why hasn't anybody said anything? This guy's going to go to jail for for sure because he's had all these complaints, yada yada yada. And I just um and I just responded by saying hey, uh, the guy who killed Eric Gardner in Staten Island also had complaints against him, and he's still on the force with 120k making 120k. So all you got to do, the only way, only thing you do is that when the right wingers pop off on their thing, you just remind them of the other cases that they didn't support. Yeah. And show them how they compare to this case, how they, how those cases are similar to this case. Mm -hmm. And then ask them, why weren't they supporting us all along? Yeah, what happened with um, Philando Castile and the NRA? Everyone. And Philando Castillo and the NRA is a complete and total joke because the NRA's done this before. The NRA has um, um when when LA blew up over Rodney King, they did the same they did their version of that video that they had with Dana Loesch on it where they had a full page ad talking about how this is why we need our guns and um we we are fighting for freedom and all that BS. Um but it was important to note that Philando Castillo is um, killed, the police are acquitted, the NRA says nothing, and the first thing that you hear from the NRA is this stupid video where they're talking about how they're going to war. <laughs> For the most, and, and essentially, that's basically what they said. So when people started calling them out, they make more videos to try to slam the people calling them out. Right. It's like, all these videos are not one for Philando Castillo. Yeah. <laughs> And, they, and, and people keep calling them out on that over and over and over again, and they act like no one's saying anything. This is one of the reasons why I say people got to stop supporting the NRA. You can support the Second Amendment rights to keep them bare arms, but by the same token, you don't need the NRA to do that. Mm -hmm. and, and, and let's be real, the NRA isn't doing that. Their constituents, their people that they're following are folks who don't like black people who don't like Hispanics, who do not like Muslims, and most importantly, do not want any of us to have guns. Right. Armed, armed self-defense, armed community defense. I was just reading the essay by, uh, what is his name? Lorenzo Comboa Irvin. Is that how you say yeah. his name? Yeah, he talks about mm -hmm. armed community self-defense and how it's been an important part of revolutionary action even in this country even if it's not as well talked about and he comes from a and he comes from a generation that saw when his community would stand up that way the police will freak out and start taking their guns and start making them criminals making them outlaws because they stand up for their communities mm -hmm. against them so when you hear the NRA try to pull this, um, do the do videos like this, um, you you pretty much get an idea of where they're, um, what direction they really want to go in. These are folks over the past couple of years uh, are part of a crew, part of a contingent, I should say, in America that keeps on quote unquote predicting a civil war in this country. Mm -hmm. A physical civil war. Alex Jones has done it. I went to um, the Conservative Political Action Conference, and they're um, showing videos that are titled Civil War 2017, 
By the way, that's produced by somebody from New Zealand. And uh, and it's basically them jonesing for for that civil war. Larry Clayman of Judicial Watch is basically saying we can't coexist. Every everybody on the left has to go to jail. He basically said that. So yeah. if this is the direction they want to go in, and going back to that whole thing about trying to keep society stable, um, that is a threat to that stability that they, that um that liberals and and the rest of the country is looking for is trying to maintain, and. It's up to us to try to um, press upon folks that these are everyone's enemies, and you cannot keep defending them because defending them on some idea that you are maintaining some sort of stability. They are not going to remain that way, and yeah. things are not. You know, we can go on forever with this with this crowd. We really can. Mm-hmm. And, but the most important thing is that we got to go out there and start talking to the public a lot more than we do. Yeah. If they'll hear it. And I think there's starting to be some real receptivity as it becomes more clear. I mean, I don't know how clear it needs to get, but for instance, in Portland, which just happened with literal white nationalist militias arresting people with the Portland Police Department. You know, I think that's starting to get some attention from liberals, although uh, surprisingly not as much as I would have hoped, but... Well, see, here's the scary thing, and it, and it always seems to play itself out. I mean, it goes back to the whole thing about how there hasn't been a war in 150 years. No one's going to get, man, Mike Tyson's famous quote, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. We're not going to see anything happen until somebody gets punched in the mouth, somebody gets hurt or killed. That's one of the biggest fears about the Trump um, Trump presidency is that that's coming. Somebody is going to die, and that is what everybody is afraid of. Well, I mean, people and, are and already dying. People are already dying, but it hasn't impacted the normies. It has not impacted the liberals. It has not impacted those who are just going through their day-to-day. And I don't say normie as a pejorative. I just say that as, you know, regular people, just yeah. folks that are doing their thing. Yeah. And um, when that happens, that's when you're going to see people trying to do something. And our mission should try to should be to encourage folks not to wait until then. Yeah. One of the worries I have is that we need to be we do need to be popping these bubbles of denial, but mm-hmm. they're protective for people also. So there's a chance that you pop the bubble and then everybody freaks out. And I think that's what a lot of normies are trying desperately to keep from happening is like, well, if we can just mm-hmm. maintain the denial bubble, then we're not going to end up in full panic because it seems like liberals only have full denial or full panic. So sort of bringing people slowly out of this denial stage is really kind of difficult, but also it's like we need to speed this process up. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, it's hard for well, you. See, the, like, normies, to... the, the, the normies, I mean, the regular person out there is – is just trying to make ends meet out there. But it's the liberals that are actually trying to keep that bubble from bursting. Yeah. Because the liberals benefit, and I'll, I'll go back to saying the people that we call liberals are actually conservative per that, um, per that article. Yeah. So they're basically trying to maintain that bubble because they benefit from that bubble being maintained. That's why 
you're not going to find any real solutions in the political process because the political process is tainted with money. Right. You change that, anything threatens that money, they're going to try to keep from um, causing too much damage. And that's what we're fighting right now. That's what's causing the grief. Well, I mean, that's on the larger, like, electoral scale, but there's also sort of waspy cultural scale just down in just white middle-class land of the same denial that's not necessarily related to, like, corruption and money. It's just related to, I don't know, privilege? Like, in, but it's, uh, kind of, it's kind of related because when you, have a, when you have a government that basically makes sure that um, certain laws in place and certain um, situations structurally go in a certain direction. Yeah, you're going to have that. Um, the reason why um, you have people like us out there is because we're trying to basically shake people away from that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I keep I keep going back to Occupy. Remember, Occupy was not taken down by some right wingers. It was. It was all these democratic liberal mayors from one country, one city to another that shut down the Occupy encampments because all of a sudden the banks were like, uh, they're a problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it just, it's this real privilege to be more afraid of anti-fascists than actual mm -hmm. fascists. <laughs> you know, yeah. people are like, you know, I was at my meeting, you know, my sort of religious church meeting, and right before a big protest in Portland called No Pass Around is on June 4th. When yeah. We have, yeah, so you hear about that? Okay, so I'm there the, that morning because it was on a Sunday, and somebody in my, um, an older white man said, well, you know, I'm more afraid of those, those anarchists than the, than the free speech protesters. And it's like, wow, man, like, wow. <laughs> well, the June 4th or June 10th, because we um, helped everybody out in Seattle on June 10th. Um, but, but yeah, I get that all the time. I get that all the time. And my thing is those same individuals are very happy we're there when the shit goes down. I mean, whenever, uh, whenever these fascists are out there trying to, um, basically do some, do some real damage and we're there to keep them from doing it. Those same, those same liberals out there are more or less patting us on the back and thanking us for, um, doing what we do. And all I say to that is we got to use that. Even if they're phony as hell, we got to use that somehow. We just got to, we just got to put our heads together and figure out how. Okay, so leverage all of those wins, all of those moments mm -hmm. when we do something right. It seems like a lot of times we're just happy to be getting the work done and don't ever sort of project when we win and when we're doing good works. People just don't even know about it. You know. Well, I, I I could be guilty of that myself too because every time we do score a hit, I'm just like relieved. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like very relieved. But it's not. But I got to remind myself, you know what? It's not over. We still got some things that we need to do. We, mm -hmm. I mean, this is just a battle here. Yeah. And after I recover from the win, I just pretty much say, okay, now what's next? Mm -hmm. um, and that's one. And I think what's next is we got to make sure that we never get this close to allowing a, fa a, a full-on white supremacist fascist state mm -hmm. openly yeah. to um, come to fruition again. We should never allow ourselves to get this close again. And granted, 
white supremacy has ruled this country for over 200 years. But something happened within the past 50 or 60 that made them scared to admit it. We got to go back to that at the very least and then go even further this time to basically salt the earth so fascists can never grow in this country. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like we need we need cheerleaders. Like so because because everyone is so, you know, anti-fascist or there is so much to do. All that salting the earth, you know, takes time and <laughs> effort. <So. laughs> yes, indeed. I mean, we got the players. We do need the cheerleaders. Yeah, so, you know, so it's just so focused. You know, I, I love anti-fascists because they I are just, like, that. so focused and work so hard on, like, it's like, oh, my God, there's a Nazi, there's a Nazi, get him, get him, get him, you know? <laughs> it's like, but then there's nobody, you know, on the sidelines being like, yeah, do it, you know? Look what we did, you know? <laughs> you see, it's one of the reasons why I got myself involved in some of the little Hollywood productions that um that I've been dealing with over the past couple of years. It's just like I don't want to. Um, I think that what it is we do needs to be seen on a grandest. So I'll do the TV shows. I'll do the movies. I think what we do is beneficial to the greater society. But it's not going to be beneficial if they don't know about it. Yeah. So. Did you so I go Hollywood every now and again. <laughs> Hollywood's an interesting thing too about the co-option. Did you hear about the new like Jake Gyllenhaal film? Jake Gyllenhaal, however you say his name, about yeah, Gyllenhaal, uh, yeah, Gyllenhaal about uh, the anarchist who went to Rojava. Like the Rolling Stone did that article on these anarchists who went to Rojava, and specifically one guy. I, what was his name? Like Pig. Fuck, I forgot his name. But now there's gonna be like a Hollywood movie about it, with and it's and it's supposed to be it's supposed to be this like charming, lovely tale about like finding yourself and in northern Syria and the original anarchist is super pissed about it, <laughs> and it's like so. Hey, well, well, look what happened with V for Vendetta. They took all the anarchy out of that comic book when they did the movie. Everybody was flipping out over that. Yeah. So, so I mean, yeah, all we got to do, I mean, yeah, we know they're going to do that. I don't say accept it. Make note of it. Definitely make note of it and say you're watering down the movie, watering down the message. But by the same token, make sure people know the real message. Yeah. On, on, and another thing, too, we can make our own movies as independent of Hollywood. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's it's a lot easier now than when it was when I was younger because you can do everything digital now. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a lot it's a lot less expensive, and it doesn't always have to be documentaries. It could be full on screen plays. Hmm. We should basically, I mean, a low budget film, uh, an independent film, is easier to make now. We should just go ahead and just make the movies that we want to make. Recruit some it's anarchists. Not, it, it's not impossible. Why why rely on um, the big budget things when we have all the tools that we want in our laptops? Yeah. I mean, and the, and the um, anarchist aesthetic is pretty forgiving. <laughs> so, like, you can, have, well, I, I mean, I rely pretty heavily on that for my podcast because I don't have Indeed. any. Indeed. <laughs> so. Well, we can even do TV shows. I mean... Uh. And put them on yet another uh, platform, YouTube. And, you know, there are so many. It's, this is one of the reasons. I mean, going back to the whole thing about being an anarchist, being an anarchist provides you with so much potential. Yeah. <laughs> and so much 
so much um, freedom to grow and build the society that you're looking for. Yeah. So use it. I mean, it's one of the more frustrating things is that um, back in the day we had indie media. We had indie media websites for all, all over the country, all over the world even. We all gave it up for Facebook. Hmm. Why? (laughs) (laughs) I can give you a good answer, and it's basically because that's where the people are at. Yeah. And I can understand that, but we still need our own platforms. We do, yeah. And we need, And, and I'll be honest with you, yes, we do need to bring back the indie media websites. Well, and the and we're cool. Is the thing is like we're easy to do interesting art and media about because anarchists are rad, and um, mm-hmm. but I think it's that's the thing is right now media is starting to look around and be like what these people are cool. Like one of my favorite moments that I've read recently was in a, the Mother Jones article. Mother Jones did an article on anarchists, uh, who in the Midwest. And mm-hmm. one of the anarchists was quoted as saying, talking about um, like Nazi skinheads in his area, and how you know he would kick the shit out of them and stuff. And he was saying, "Oh well, you know, I really don't like to use gendered language like this, but they're fucking pussies." <laughs> I just like laughed my ass off. Like that's hilarious. Who else but an anarchist would say that? No way. <laughs> and you know, all those little moments like that are really rich. There's a lot of richness to anarchist culture that. Um, we need to claim before Hollywood does. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. And I think, um, I, I, I could think about myself and there's so much that I would like to do. There's so many screenplays that I would like to write, but I'm getting older now and there's, and there's so much on my plate as it is that I just basically just pass it off to the next person and just see whether or not they can do something with it. We can do, there's just so much that we can do media wise, community wise, um, we can solve our, we can answer our own questions and solve our own problems. And I'm not just talking about anarchists, I'm just talking in general. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things that we can do, as I said before, right now, that will solve our problems without having to go through some big time media outlet or some politician. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why they, um, why they are all about net neutrality, because uh, because a lot of stuff in the digital age is is a threat, and um, for right now, um, the internet could be a threat to them sometimes. So you know, let's take advantage of it before they um, before they figure out how to turn that around. I mean, they haven't been able to in twenty years, um, but there's no telling what can happen in the next one. Yeah, we need to bring pirate radio back. We need to bring. We don't even need to bring private radio back. We just simply need to make make sure that everybody knows that these podcasts are out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. It's a fun thing to do. Nothing's going analog anymore. I mean, unless unless you really want a strong security culture, since <laughs> if you want to have terrestrial radio, that's the best way to do it. Snail mail, terrestrial <laughs> radio, that's the best security culture because no one looks at anything offline anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I was looking at Crime Think's posters. They have posters, and a lot of them are um, pretty old. So I guess the print media hasn't been as big of a thing. Um, mm-hmm. Really great posters, though. I like hey, those. You uh, never underestimate the power of print media, even in 2017. Seriously. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, it's been um, an hour and 15 minutes. The conversation was so good, and I didn't want to, like, cut it off. <laughs> oh, no. See, I love having conversations like this. And I always forget to tell people you can always check out the website, onepeoplesproject.com, or our newsline, idavox.com, I-D-A-V-O-X. And, and the reason why I always forget that is because I'm having such a good damn time talking with people <laughs> whenever I do these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so feel uh, free to check out the website if you like our T-shirts and stuff like that. Feel free to get um, ask ask us for them, and uh, you know, support support anarchism because yes. it supports you. Oh, it does. <laughs> That's nice. And I should maybe I just say yeah, I have a Facebook page. It's called Friendly Anarchism. Easy to find. It's it's got a picture of a Quaker with a band bandana on. That's me. So. <laughs> um. Yeah, thank you so much. This was awesome. I I hope my um, <laughs> shitty anarchist aesthetic like it actually sounds like something. <laughs> but... Oh, don't worry. You'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Awesome. Um, well, I'm going to stop recording, but I'll let stay on the phone for a second. All right. Okay, thank you so much. This has been Catherine with Friendly Anarchism, and see you next week.